getting hooked on gambling, sex, shopping, video games, and other behavioral vices is every bit as overwhelming and life-destroying as getting hooked on alcohol and drugs. While there are no external chemicals involved with behavioral addictions, they stir up our brain chemistry in many of the same ways that alcohol and drugs do. A few weeks ago, we read an overview of the science of addiction from the Time magazine special of that name on Sound Body. This week, we're going to read an article titled Compulsion Without the Chemicals that looks at the latest brain research and offers ideas for how to get help with any compulsion that stopped being fun long ago. This was written by Barbara O'Dare. In the early 1980s, marriage and family therapist Chris Anderson took a break from his practice to try his hand at stock trading, joining a brokerage firm in his hometown of Austin, Texas. Within a couple of days, he doubled his money. Even though the sum was relatively small, he did the math and decided he liked what it told him. I went from not really knowing what I was doing to my mind filling with numbers so big that I couldn't even count them, he recalls. I'd been known as a tightwad in my family, ironically, but here I thought I'd discovered something amazing. Hooked on the rush of getting rich quick, Anderson studied the markets, developed strategies, and began generating money for himself and his clients. Then he started losing, which did not discourage him, as it might have some people who got ahead of themselves in an unfamiliar field such as investing. Instead, he says it only motivated him to take even greater financial risks. He became obsessed with making back the money he'd lost, and then some. At the time, Anderson was married with two young children. It took me only a couple of years to end up in bankruptcy court, he says. His house was foreclosed on, his wife divorced him, he did not see his children for ten years, and he ended up suicidal, receiving treatment in Austin State Hospital. Ultimately, Anderson found his way into a Gamblers Anonymous meeting, where someone steered him to a conference in Dallas that weekend. While there, he met the late Robert Custer, a renowned psychiatrist who specialized in gambling disorder. Custer looked Anderson in the eyes and said, You're really hurting, aren't you? At that moment, Anderson says, I moved from a place of despair to hope. Since the day he began his treatment with Custer, Anderson says, he has been trying to understand his relationship with gambling, which is what speculative investment is for many people, and the disorder that cost him everything but his life. Now, 67 and a compulsive gambling counselor himself, he has worked with hundreds of people with gambling disorders so to treat their addiction and unravel its mysteries so they can heal. These days, he says, he has two types of people in his life. Those who want to talk to me because they know that I get it, and those who want to avoid me like the plague because they know that I get it. When it comes to an addictive behavior like gambling or shopping or eating or having sex or exercising or playing video games, it's always been unclear whether anyone truly gets it. Indeed, it's long been debated whether the behavior is an addiction at all. Drug or alcohol addictions, after all, require a chemical, an external agent that enters the body and messes with the workings of the brain itself. 
In some cases, the chemical is so powerful, addiction seems almost instantaneous, as it is with heroin or crystal meth. In other cases, it takes a little while. Nicotine, marijuana. Either way, the brain often gets hooked. But behavioral addictions are just that, behavioral. No one smokes video games. No one shoots up shopping. Yet the result is the same. The cravings, the compulsions, the need for more and more in pursuit of a high that offers less and less. The first question is, how exactly does such repetitive behavior cause the brain to tip into an addictive cycle? The second, more pressing one is, how can an understanding of the mechanisms lead us to a cure? What's in a name? In 1994, gambling disorder was classified as pathological gambling and was grouped with other impulse control disorders such as kleptomania and pyromania in the benchmark psychiatric text Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM. The authoritative reference for mental health professionals is conservative in its approach to classification, making changes only slowly as scientific evidence mounts to challenge old ideas. It took 21 years, from 1952 to 1973, for the DSM to remove homosexuality from its list of mental disorders. So it was a really big deal in 2013 when the fifth and most recent edition, DSM-5, changed the diagnosis to compulsive gambling and classified it as a substance-related and addictive disorder, alongside opioids, alcohol, and other addictive substances. Hypersexual disorder and gaming disorder were also considered for inclusion. And although neither was classified, gaming disorder was included in the manual Section 3, which lists diagnostic categories requiring further research and which may someday be considered for classification. Then, in 2018, the World Health Organization released a revised International Classification of Diseases, the ICD-11 which included gaming disorder and compulsive sexual behavior disorder, CSBD, both classified as impulse control disorders, not addictive disorders akin to substance abuse and now gambling. But that doesn't mean they're not the same problem. Some things generate addiction at a higher rate. For example, nicotine or opioids. Fentanyl will kill you rapidly says psychiatrist and research scientist Nora Volkow, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, NIDA, which is part of the U.S. National Institutes of Health. By comparison, she says, compulsive shopping won't kill you, but it will disrupt your life. Likewise, video gamers have been known to stop sleeping and eating while in the grip of a game. Over the course of her long career, Volkow has conducted research showing how heroin and other opioids target the brain's reward system by flooding the circuits with dopamine, a neurotransmitter that regulates emotion, motivation, and pleasure, among other things. When the system is activated at a normal level, it rewards natural behaviors. When drugs overstimulate the system, however, they can produce euphoric effects, strongly reinforcing the drug use. 
scientists have begun to understand that dopamine not only contributes to the experience of pleasure, but also plays a role in learning and memory, two key elements in the transition from liking something to becoming addicted to it, according to a Harvard Health letter published in July 2011. This system effectively teaches the drug user to repeat the behavior, and it's only a short step to the same circuits teaching us to repeat non-chemically mediated behaviors just as compulsively. This system has an important role in sustaining life because it links activities needed for human survival, such as eating and sex, with pleasure and reward, the health letter goes on to explain. Addictive substances and behaviors stimulate the same circuit, and then overload it. The story of a sex addict. Erica Garza, who grew up in a Mexican-American family in Montebello, California, lived that pain. In the early 1990s, when she was a tween, she began thinking about sex a lot. That's hardly unusual for people at that age, but the way she thought about it was... She remembers keeping lists of boys I wanted to touch and making crude sexual drawings. At age 10, it seemed I lusted after everyone, she says, my male and female teachers, the boys and girls in class. Once Garza became sexually active, she says, sex made me feel temporarily satiated, but it was almost always tied up in shame about the kind of sex I'd had the kind of person he was, or the kind of fantasies I'd feasted on throughout. There was always something to feel bad about. I felt empty and anxious, waiting for the next round with someone new. It got to the point that Garza became dependent on shame in order to feel pleasure, she says. Her 20s were marked by escalating risky, unhealthy behavior, being secretive, cheating, looking for men who would degrade me, having unprotected sex. A low point came one night in Paris when she was recovering from the end of a significant relationship. I drank too much and went home with a young waiter, she recalls. I only remember fragments of the rough sex we had. After leaving his apartment in bloodied, ripped clothing, I wandered the streets until I found a taxi. I often think about how much worse that night could have gone alone, drunk, and half-dressed. It's the first thing she thinks about when she reflects on those days. Eventually, Garza says, she began listening to a voice in her head that kept telling me to stop hurting myself and others. Thanks to a variety of interventions, including a short-term 12-step program and a therapeutic retreat, Garza began to shake herself free, and she now considers that dark time to be safely in her past. She's married with a child and living in Bali, and she calls herself recovered. She published a memoir, Getting Off, in 2018. Volkow has seen dramas like Garza's play out countless times, with the cycle of addiction, and sometimes recovery, more or less the same whether chemicals or behaviors are involved. All addicted persons give great value to the thing they're addicted to, so that it's constantly desired, she says. Once a person addicted to food eats, they have a need for more and more. Anything that has a potential of activating the dopamine system has what we call an addictive dimension. There's a lot more than mere semantics at play in labels like that. 
DSM classifications can have serious real-world ramifications. How a disorder is classified has a significant implication as to who might receive care, says Mark Potenza, professor of psychiatry, child study, and neuroscience at the Yale School of Medicine and director of the Center of Excellence in Gambling Research at Yale. If a disorder is seen in the realm of addiction, then people providing care in treatment settings should be receiving training in that area. Conversely, if that disorder is not classified as an addiction, it's much less likely that the providers will have the necessary experience to help the addicted person. In addition, diagnostic criteria are used by clinicians when they write up their treatments for health insurers, which naturally has an impact on reimbursement. Then, too, there is the social component. If, say, food addiction or compulsive shopping were to become officially designated as a disorder, it's probably safe to say that those behaviors would become less marginalized and less likely to be dismissed as simply self-indulgent. Potenza was part of the working group that recommended the reclassification of gambling disorder in the DSM-5. Its arguments backed by studies revealing commonalities between gambling disorder behavior and substance use disorders. But not everyone agrees with the new addiction model. Mary Jean Creek is perhaps best known in the field of neuropsychopharmacology and addictive disease for being part of a team of three scientists who developed methadone maintenance therapy for heroin addiction. Currently professor and head of the Laboratory on the Biology of Addictive Diseases at Rockefeller University in New York City, Creek brings a robust skepticism to what some experts see as a troublesome trend. I'll never call binge eating or sexual behaviors an addiction, she says. Those are compulsive behaviors. She adds bluntly that behavior is behavior, distinct from neurobiological changes in the brain from the drugs that my lab and others have been able to define in terms of addictive disease. Researchers do have legitimate concerns about weakening the validity of diagnoses by being overly inclusive. Assign everyone the same label, and you prescribe everyone the same or a very similar treatment. Clearly, the person who continually relapses on crystal meth requires a different recovery treatment than the gamer who never leaves the computer. Scientists have been studying behavioral disorders vis-a-vis substance addiction for several decades, and we're still at an early stage of understanding the specific similarities and differences, concedes Potenza you can always benefit from more research. Who gets hooked? Just as some people can drink in moderation, while others dare not go anywhere near alcohol because one drink inevitably means a great many drinks, so too can some people eat or shop or have sex or gamble and feel satisfied relatively quickly. So what is it that makes such basic parts of living so fraught for so many? It would help if we knew just how many so many is, but without DSM classifications, an exact count of addictive behaviors is impossible. An estimated 6% of the U.S. population ages 12 and over meet the criteria for a substance use disorder. 
That's 20.3 million people who battle addictions to alcohol or an illicit substance. This figure doesn't include nicotine. Even without comparable numbers for addictive behaviors, if you add all of the individuals in 12-step programs, residential facilities, and therapy offices for non-substance addictive behaviors, plus the undiagnosed and the treatment averse, the population of people battling addiction would likely swell to many more millions. With the rise of interactive gambling and the legalization of sports wagering, more than two dozen states and Washington, D.C. have legalized sports betting, or are in the process of legalizing it, there are new and readily accessible routes to gambling addiction all the time. Leah Nauer, director of the Center for Gambling Studies at Rutgers University's School of Social Work in New Brunswick, New Jersey, first became interested in gambling when she was a criminal attorney in Missouri. In the criminal court system, there were people who never even had a parking ticket, facing years in prison because of gambling-related crimes, she says. There were no programs for them because no one thought gambling was a real addiction. And there are still no diversion programs. Both substance and behavioral addictions are multifactorial in origin, and one of those factors is surely genetic. Researchers estimate that genetics play anywhere from a 40 to 60 percent role in a person's vulnerability to addiction, even though no single gene has ever been found, or ever will be found, that will be pinpointed as the cause of addiction. That's just not how genetics works. In genome-wide studies of gambling disorders, says Potenza, no specific gene or region of the genome has reached genome-wide significance. Instead, addiction likely begins with a whole suite of factors involving both the genome and the lesser-known epigenome, the sort of keyboard that sits atop the genes and decides which will be played and which will remain silent. You might carry a gene that predisposes you to heart disease or depression, but if certain chemical, environmental, or experiential factors don't activate the epigenome, the underlying gene might do you no harm. In the case of addiction, once those genetic chords start to play, they may influence all manner of behaviors. Similarities exist between substance and behavioral addictions, just as similarities exist between specific substance use disorders. That's why addicts may be cross-addicted, as the 12-step programs aptly put it, with alcohol, for example, helping to fuel binges of gambling or sex. It's why Alcoholics Anonymous meetings are so often choked by cigarette smoke. Las Vegas, where free booze and casinos and illegal gambling and sex trade coexist 24 hours a day, relies on this behavioral mashup. Simple temperament may be part of things, too. People who like risk may jump out of airplanes or ride roller coasters, and may similarly like the high-stakes thrill of getting rich or going broke on a single hand of poker. Risk-averse people find none of this appealing. That might mean a life of fewer thrills, but it also may mean fewer disasters. Before his descent into addictive investing, Chris Anderson exhibited impaired impulse control, problems in social interactions, a tendency to court danger, and a need for greater and greater risk stimulation. 
a constant upping of the ante to achieve the same level of thrill. Those four traits alone check all of the DSM boxes for a substance addiction. The manual lists nine characteristics for compulsive gambling, including repeated failed attempts to cut back on gambling, frequent thoughts about gambling, often gambling when feeling distressed, and lying to conceal gambling activity. Anderson checked all nine. Domains like reward processing may show commonalities across addictions, as might impaired control or poor emotional regulation, says Potenza. It's important, if we're going to advance prevention and treatment efforts, that we understand both similarities and differences. Treating the disease. Generally, behavioral addictions pose a significant challenge for treatment and recovery. That's partly because the behaviors that cause problems are most of the time not ones that lend themselves to abstinence. Plenty of people go their entire lives without drinking or smoking or doing drugs, and those who start can often stop. That's true, too, of behavioral addictions such as gambling and video gaming. But there's no such thing as swearing off eating or shopping or sex. They're fundamental parts of human life. That fact requires people with compulsive addictive behaviors to live in a state of gray, a little, but not too much, of the dangerous behavior. And addicts are very, very bad at gray. One person struggling with compulsive sexual behavior disorder, for whom exhibitionism became part of the compulsive cycle, began driving around in his car looking for women to whom he could expose himself. At first he did it occasionally, then all the time. His need began to escalate, he says, in the same way that an alcoholic might move from six beers to a dozen, and then to a dozen with a Jack Daniels on the side. For him, the spiral ended only when he exposed himself to a woman who turned out to be an off-duty police officer. She copied down the license plate number of his car, and he spent eight months behind bars. After his release, he entered a recovery program that has been, so far, successful. In some cases, the 12-step model or other forms of group therapy can be a part of that process, putting people with behavioral addictions in the company of other people fighting the same fight, and calling on them to be accountable for their choices when they come back the next day or week. Some antidepressants or other psychotropic medications may work, too, at least by taking the edge off the anxiety or emptiness that comes from not indulging in the desired behavior. And while targeted medications are a key component of substance use treatment, there is no FDA-approved pharmacological approach to gambling or other behavioral disorders. There's limited data on treatments with all classes of medication, including opioid analgesics. Experts like Nora Volkow agree, however, that this area is wide open for much further study. There's a lot of interest in medications, she says. We see big patterns between food, sex, and drugs, and we need meds to block that. People with addictive behaviors may also benefit from cognitive behavioral reframing challenging the internal narrative that a third donut, a fourth shirt in the same color, a fifth sexual partner will bring lasting peace and relief. That kind of approach can work for problem gambling, too. Nauer has learned that successive treatment for 
Successful treatment for gambling addiction involves unraveling the magical thinking that's fueled by illogical thoughts about randomness. If you roll a six-sided die and three comes up three times and one doesn't ever come up and you ask educated people, what do you think the next number is going to be? Some will say three because it's hot and some will say one because it's due, Nauer explains. That, however, is not how probabilities work and challenged on the point, most people realize that fact. The reality is they all know every role is independent of that which comes before. But we're taught to look for patterns in our lives, and so we look for patterns in gambling. Those are things you have to address in treatment. As with so many other psychological disorders, people with addictive behaviors who are working to get well also have to overcome shame and social scorn. The notion that they brought their problems on themselves and are to be blamed for not getting them under control. In some ways, that's the result of science chiding itself. Addicted persons get stigmatized because we can't help them, Volkow says. We're advancing, but there are a lot of unknowns about the brain. Across all addictions, people trying to break out of impulse and dependency can benefit from confronting a simple truth. Whatever their compulsion is, it long ago stopped being fun. The buzz of a drug, the ease of a drink, the thrill of roulette are no longer to be had, replaced by an urgency and a desperation, a need simply to get back to a baseline at which the pain of being addicted goes away. It's a rueful refrain among alcoholics that no one ever wants a second drink, much less a third or a fifth or a tenth. They all want that first drink all over again, the moment when the familiar expectation of peace settles in. They spend their drinking lives chasing that feeling, just like Anderson chased his initial investment losses, just like someone who hops from bed to bed chases the thrill of when sex was new. An addicted person's compulsion is like driving a car without brakes, Volkow has written. No two addictions are identical, nor are any two treatments. Still, nearly all people in recovery share some of the same treatment protocols, including detox support to achieve initial stability, diagnosis and evaluation to address co-occurring disorders, a treatment plan with a trained specialist, appropriate therapies and goals for recovery, ongoing peer support and accountability, such as a 12-step program with people in similar situations, family support, including support groups for family members, education, and family therapy. None of those approaches are easy and none are certain to work. All take a lifetime commitment to remaining in control of urges that are straining to break free. All the same, asked what she would tell people struggling with addiction, Volkow remains optimistic that you can recover, don't give up, treatment works. Then she adds ruefully, but... It doesn't cure it. And I thought that was a good article on teasing out compulsions from chemical addictions. Thank you for tuning in today. Stay well, and please come back next week for more healthy living ideas.